Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode of Mission Log is also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Take the Helix Sleep quiz and get up to $200 off your new mattress and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 417, Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every episode of Star Trek to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, treachery, faith, and the great river. The one where Odo comes face-to-face again with the unwavering devotion from Weyoun. Uh, no, 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 the other one. No, 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 not that one. The other Weyoun. Yeah, I know it's hard to keep track of all the Wayunes out there, but here's some information that's easy to keep straight and how you can get in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323 Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, and, and hoping that he won't find out that I've replaced his desk because one of our patrons wanted to take a picture with it, here's John Champion <laughs> with this week's trivia. Excellent. Thank you, Norman. Well, look, trivia this week is going to be really short and sweet. Uh, today's story, Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. We have a story by Philip Kim, and I just love a background story like this. It was Iris Stephen Bear who really wanted an episode that would pair up Odo and Wei-Yoon. I mean, here they look at getting toward the end of the run of DS9, toward the end of their entire series, right? And Ira goes, who have we not paired up yet? Ooh, this is what I want to do. All right. So Philip was a production assistant, just a lowly PA on DS9, and he overheard this idea. And then he pitched something It was a little bit different. It was actually a Cisco Weyoun team-up that he had in mind, one in which Weyoun would manipulate Cisco into fighting a common enemy who would replace the Jem'Hadar, but really this new race were the replacement species for the Vorta. So Weyoun would have double-crossed Cisco there. And uh, there were plenty of elements that did make it over from Philip's pitch, so the writing duty was handed over to David Weddle and Bradley Thompson. And you remember that team who were brought in by Ira, David being the Peckinpah fan, and Bradley being his collaborator. And they were able to get the story more in line with Ira's wishes, and then they added a bit of influence from a favorite story, that would be Joseph Heller's Catch-22, which is how they envisioned the B-plot. In the director's chair, Steve Posey, here we have a brand new name on the director's list and the start of just a handful of DS9 assignments. Steve mostly worked as a cinematographer starting in the 70s, but his directorial gigs included Babylon 5, Hercules, Space Above and Beyond, and Buffy, so he is well-steeped in sci-fi and fantasy. And now, Norman, let's talk about guest stars. Uh, Let's see, you know, the standout for me, probably Chief Willoughby. He's... uh, well, 
yeah, we, we actually, we, we never meet Chief Willoughby, but we give a lot of airtime to talking about Chief Willoughby, so we'll leave that one to your imagination. We do get to welcome back some of our favorite guest stars. Of course, in prominent roles here, Casey Biggs as Damar, and uh, I'm very excited to introduce Jeffrey Combs as Weiyun Six and Jeffrey Combs as Weiyun Seven. Just curious, Norman, were you able to just uh, immediately spot the differences between Jeffrey Combs and Jeffrey Combs as Weiyun and Weiyun? The nuances were really subtle. I tried. I watched it several times. But this is why Jeffrey Combs is such a great actor, because you just can't see him slip in those nuances. The man is a chameleon, and he absolutely nailed it on this. I'm going to say they should retroactively just go back and give him double billing. If Wayun is a major part of the story, I have faith that there will be some treachery involved but it will be charming treachery. Prologue. In Colonel Kira's quarters, she's lying face down and in the throes of ecstasy at Odo's hands, because that's exactly what an amazing deep tissue massage from a changeling's hands can do for her. It turns out that she may have pulled several back muscles playing spring ball against Odo, and their rematch will have to wait until his return from a secret meeting with one of his most trusted Cardassian informants, Gul Rasal, presumed dead at the hands of the Dominion, and yet just has reached out to him for reasons unknown. Odo, as he is consistently wont to do, must seek out the truth of this affair. Meanwhile, on the promenade, Chief O'Brien is literally knee-deep in exposed conduits and containers trying to repair technical issues plaguing not just the local businesses, but Quark's in particular, or that's what Quark is trying to impress upon the chief. To make matters worse, Captain Sisko jumps to the front of the repair line and demands for the Defiant to be fixed and ready for duty, even though the graviton stabilizer needed for the repair won't arrive for another three weeks. O'Brien is good, but even he can't change the laws of supply and demand. But perhaps Nog can, as he takes it upon himself to sort out the chief's problems in Nog's own particular Ferengi way. Later, as Odo arrives at Gulrasal's designated rendezvous point on a barren moon, he is caught off guard as Wayun is waiting to meet him and requests Odo to grant him asylum. Act 1. Even though he has met with Odo's signature level of skepticism, Wayun explains in great detail that he wants to leave the Dominion for fear of his life. Failure is looked upon poorly in the Dominion, and due to the prolonged nature of the war with the Federation, Wayun believes his life is in danger, and that Odo is the only one who can protect him. To establish a modicum of trust, Wayun gives Odo the exact location of a Ketracel white manufacturing plant, one that has eluded Federation detection. Until now. And with that, Odo takes Wayun into custody as they both return to the Rio Grande and Deep Space Nine. Back on the station, Nog finds the chief still backlogged by repairs, but gives him the rundown on everything he needs to know about Chief Edgar Willoughby. You know, Chief, the guy who's supposed to supply you the parts needed to repair the Defiant. But to make things go a little quicker, Nog nags the chief for his access codes, you know, to expedite things. More on that later. As the Rio Grande speeds back to Deep Space Nine... Wayun stares longingly at Odo and admits that he's beside himself with honor, sitting in the presence of one of his gods. Suddenly, they are interrupted by a Cardassian transmission, and before they can scramble it, Odo and Wayun are face-to-face -face with... Wayun? Act 2. After a brief exchange of pleasantries, the Wayun in Odo's custody is clone number 6. The Wayun who appears on the monitor, now alongside Damar, is Wayun 7. What about Wayun 5? You know, the one who Odo and the rest of Sisko's crew has been entangled with all this time? Well, it turns out that he met with a fatal transporter accident, and 6 is obviously showing symptoms of a defective cloning procedure, hence his desire to break away from the Dominion. In fact, both Damar and Wayun 7 believe 6 should activate his self-termination module to prove his loyalty to Dominion, and especially the Founders. But the only founder that Six is now loyal to is Odo, which temporarily shields them both from Wayun Seven's reprisal. That is until Damar convinces Seven that 
No one needs to know that they were responsible for a changeling's death, especially one who doesn't even consider him one of the founders anymore. Back on Deep Space Nine, the Chief is in a real, real mess. It seems that Nog has been a little creative with the Chief's authorization codes. One trade here, another negotiation there, and poof. You are standing in an empty captain's room with no desk and an irate Colonel Kira who wants Cisco's desk back as in yesterday. Later in the replimat, and nearly at his wit's end, O'Brien is sermonized by Nog, who asks the chief to put his faith in the Great Material Continuum, which is the Ferengi belief system that puts the universe as being connected by a grand, flowing river of goods, needs, wants, and services coming together in perfect harmony and balance. Um, yeah, but what about the captain's desk? As Weyun 6 and Odo speed onward to DS9 and the protection of Federation space, Weyun is plagued by a nightmare where he's lost on Earth and surrounded by enemies on all sides. As Odo sympathizes with Weyun's plight and understands what it means to betray one's people. But all that will have to wait as the Rio Grande is rocked by enemy fire as a Jem'Hadar fighter appears and is in pursuit. Act 3. As Odo does his level best to evade incoming Jem'Hadar weapons fire... Wayun proves once again that his defection is real by trusting Odo and relaying to him vital tactical information that allows Odo to maneuver the Rio Grande behind the Jem'Hadar fighter and destroy it. Wayun, however, relieved to have survived this encounter, sits back and laments the lives he has taken, loyal lives, and servants of the Dominion who are simply following orders. Odo can't help but wonder why Wayun would choose to betray the Founders, but Wayun convinces Odo that in serving the Founders, he saw that they have the capacity for good, and are just simply misguided, even for gods. Back on Deep Space Nine, General Martok is beside himself with outrage and disbelief as he and Worf glare at several empty crates of what should be 16 cases of precious blood wine. The Chief, becoming more anxious and tense, and, well, Nog, what exactly is he up to? Meanwhile, at the Dominion headquarters on Cardassia, both Damar and Weyun are stunned that their attack fighter failed in such a simple mission. Perhaps more ships launched from the nearby Ulmarak system is the answer to their troubles. Just then, the female changeling, looking a bit worse for wear and exhibiting signs of extreme dehydration, interrupts what she senses is something amiss about Weyun 6's capture. However, Wayun 7 appeases his master and ensures her that Wayun 6 will be apprehended in due course. Damar can't help but remark on the female changeling's appearance and insists to Wayun 7 that she is not well. As the Rio Grande continues its escape route back to Federation space, and after sampling every type of meal that the runabout's replicator could provide, Wayun 6 regales Odo with how the Vorta came to be in the service of the Founders. The Vorta were a primitive, prey-like species who came upon an injured changeling chased by a mob of angry solids. The Vorta protected and nursed it back to health, and in return, the changeling and the founders, to be sure, helped the Vorta evolve into a people far greater than what Weyun Six described as primitive apes. His point, the changelings are capable of a great kindness, and perhaps with the right leadership, could be again. And leading with that, Wayun tells Odo that there is a sickness in the Great Link, and the Founders are dying. Act 4. Wayun 6 recounts recent meetings with the female changeling and how she appeared, withering and ill, and admitted to the Vorta that she and those in the Great Link are all suffering from the same disease. And if Odo remains as the sole survivor of the Founders, he could reshape the future of their race, with the benevolence and kindness that Weyun 6 believes Odo is capable of. All of this speculation will have to wait, however, as four Jem'Hadar attack ships have engaged the runabout, forcing Odo to try and evade them in a nearby ice field, and using his tactical wisdom as a changeling by becoming the ice, and shrouding their energy signature amidst the freezing temperatures of the cavernous ice flows. Speaking of a cold reception... The chief is running out of options as Colonel Kira is breathing down his neck, demanding for Cisco's desk to be returned and not some desperate IKEA furniture substitution. To make matters worse, General Martok barges in and demands what the chief did with his blood wine, a gift from his dear wife. The chief's access codes are on the cargo may manifest, so he's on the hook for them. How do you say 
up the creek in Klingon. It's a creek, great river, same difference, right? Speaking of up the creek, a combination of freezing to death in the runabout and the Jem'Hadar weapons fire becoming too close for comfort, they flush Odo out of hiding as the Rio Grande fires its way to freedom with the Jem'Hadar closing in for the kill. Act 5. Taking heavy damage from the Jem'Hadar, Weyun 6 knows only one way he can serve Odo, as he has been programmed to do, and that is to finally contact Weyun 7 and Damar and surrender, in a manner of speaking. Weyun 6, with his successor, Damar, and Odo as witnesses, activates his self-termination module, declaring with his dying breaths that what he has done is for the love and loyalty of the Founders and the future of the Dominion. Somewhat moved by this act of sacrifice, Weyun 7 ignores Damar's orders to destroy Odo and protect whatever secrets that Weyun 6 may have told him. With the attack called off, Weyun 6 dies peacefully in the arms of his god, who reluctantly blesses him for his loyalty and sacrifice. Back on Deep Space Nine, it seems that all the chief needed was to have faith in the great material continuum. The captain's desk was returned. General Martok's 16 cases of blood wine were replaced with an even rarer vintage, and the stabilizer is in hand and ready to make the defiant ship shape for duty. Later in his quarters, Odo grapples with what has happened on his mission and confesses to Kira that Wayun died in his arms with contentment on his face. Kira, trying to put it all into perspective for him, reminds Odo that rarely, if ever, do people of faith have the chance to serve their gods, and for their gods in kind, to even recognize such acts of devotion. However, a greater uncertainty looms over Odo, as he has been placed in the middle of a war between saving his people or helping his side win the war. Either way, Odo feels he will be on the losing side. The End all right, Norman, I knew that it wouldn't escape your recap, and I'm so glad uh, that you brought it up. But let, let's just, first things first here, Odo's massage hands. Was this ever a consumer product or, or at least like an action figure variant? Because I feel like if not, CBS is really missing an opportunity. I don't think that there are enough pages in the history of when they created Changelings that where we could go with material like this. Yeah. Yeah, um, I just say, look, uh, best massage in your life, probably at the hands or whatever of a changeling. So I would think mm -hmm. so. get on that CBS, okay? So that whole opening sequence, you know, it's so typical 90s, yes. you know, the, the sexy innuendo misdirection. That's, mm -hmm. that's very signature 90s. I have a question, though. Exactly what planet would have given Nerys the tan lines that she had? Because... Oh. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're we're talking about you know the real actress, you know Nana Visitor, yeah. but she must have like you know went out I don't know somewhere sunny before filming the scene because yeah. she had tan lines. Yeah, so like in universe, it's either well, you know, it could be Bejor just spending a little time on Bejor because you can, or Risa, but who's going to Risa during the war? You know, perhaps Bejor or Bejor, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, something happened in that off time. Um, and, <laughs> hey, speaking of things happening, what in the world happened to the promenade? It's like things are okay one week and then total chaos the next week. It's a good thing it's not the week where, you know, say Chief O'Brien just decided to go off book because. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go to the, the forest planet where there are caves that we can take our daughter to. Yeah, I'll be gone that week, except, uh, yeah, yeah, this is the week. If you notice, like, all the tubing that was, say, pulled out from those panels, how do you get them back in the panels? I know. I know. It's like That's a lot of tubing. Yeah, yeah. It's like unpacking any sort of, you know, a model kit or a toy or an electronic device. Forget about it. You will never get it back in the packaging the way it came. Um, mm -mm. And this is all Cardassian tech still. So, yeah. Thank goodness they have so many Jeffries tubes and so many service conduits to work with. <laughs> You know, I know that we always give a lot of credit to, you know, Jeffrey Combs, you know, when he's, you know, part of the guest star list. But I have to say, when you really watch Aaron perform Nog, mm -hmm. he does so with incredible nuance. Mm. He really does from the way that he kind of like that, that, car, that Ferengi glimmer in his eyes and the way he kind of cackles and just all of his little side movements. He just really knows the character. He knew Nog. Oh, yeah. Like inside and out. Yeah. A absolutely. And, uh, we, we, you know, he's not 
heavily, heavily in this episode. It is the B-plot, and he's not in every scene of the B-plot, but he owns those moments that he has. And even with a line like, whisper your way to success, which is Mm -hmm. rule of acquisition number 168, I love that. He sells it perfectly. And speaking of great lines in the episode, oh my God, uh, look, this runs the risk of turning into the uh, Jeffrey Combs fan club episode of Mission Log, but with lines like, of course I'm paranoid because everybody's trying to kill me. (laughs) That is just absolute gold, and he sells it perfectly again. So here's a uh, technical note that I wanted to make. So the scenes when you see Wayun Seven and Damar together Mm -hmm. in the Cardassian office, I was really looking at the makeup in the close-ups because Maybe it's the way that uh, these were shot or the lighting was, but it's very apparent that where the wig and the forehead prosthetic meet on on Casey's Damar, you can actually see a little bit of a a flesh tone change Mm. from gray to almost kind of like pinkish flesh. So that and there's this weird kind of like almost purplish halo between the wig and kind of like the fleshy tone of of Wayun 7. Kind of like a bad dye job, you know, like where you didn't like get the dye rinsed off in time. Mm-hmm. So remember, folks, when you want these shows to be remastered in 4K, these will stand out. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you mentioned it before in an episode where it seemed like mm-hmm. uh, Garrick's makeup wasn't quite, uh, it wasn't quite on par with the way it, it usually is. Like there's a tonal change and kind of see seams. And, you know, I, I get they're, they're on a set and already that set is dark as most of uh, DS9 is. But then when you see it magnified on film, and, and even what we get is pretty good, if you were to bring that up to 4K, it would be really obvious. Um, uh, speaking of Damar, though, holy hell, did Damar kill Yoon <laughs> 5? I mean, they just sort of keep hammering that over and over again. I mean, Wow. That's quite the turn that I wasn't expecting, but I guess totally expected. Fascinating little bit of detail to throw in there. And also, do all the Wayuns get a briefing of what all their predecessors did? Because it's a lot of information that gets handed off from Wayun to Wayun. I'm wondering if there's something embedded in them that downloads whatever they were, like at the point of termination, and then uploads it as soon as their clone gets activated. Right, right. Yeah, you got to wonder. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Interesting that you brought up Damar and maybe his involvement with Wayun 5, uh-huh. because as soon as they started talking about that, he started hitting the Kanar a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, again, another data point where you see Damar in an episode and hitting the Kanar bottle. I have to believe those things are going to come to a head pretty soon. Yeah. I have to believe. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, they, this has been a, a, a simmer going on here that I, I think is going to have a bigger payoff. Yeah. The whole he wanted to take a picture of the captain's desk, so we shipped it off to this guy. I'm going to get into that later. Okay. I just want to plant the seed right now. Okay. Because, look, I, I'm not opposed <laughs> to this thing at all. I mean, look, I'm the guy who spent a good half hour in the Oval Office reproduction at the Nixon Library just because I was trying to get the photo right. Um, for the record, I was doing a Kennedy pose, but it was a perfect reproduction of that era Oval Office. So I, I, I get the fascination with desks, but I look forward to coming back to that, okay? Why isn't Wayun 6 eating pepperoni with a chopstick like memed everywhere <laughs> you would think it was such a great visual moment it was such a great gag and you yeah you would think that it would be everywhere he's so perfect in it what i want to know is this odo calls him out he says you sampled the replicator's entire menu uh, okay that is either a ton of food that he ate because we're basically talking about a computer with a, you know an infinite number of possible recipes or that replicator has a serious problem where they just they got the uh, they they got the one runabout that has like uh, all right pepperoni pizza, uh, mm-hmm. chicken curry, and lasagna, and that's it, and that's it. that's all they got. And he could go through that because you know they're not in the shuttle for a long, long time. But I'm thinking like you could potentially have tens of thousands of recipes in that thing. That is one hungry little Vorta. 
Well, remember, we're also kind of like uh, under the impression that, you know, Starfleet is this kind of like multiracial, multicultural, multi-species organization. Right. So do they all like pizza? Yeah. Do they all like hamburgers? <laughs> right. You know, yeah. uh, what about, uh, you know, other like cuisines like, you know, Bajoran cuisines or Bullion cuisines, you know, yeah. or, you know, I, I don't know. Well, or maybe they do all like pizza. First of all, yeah, the, the answer to your question, do they all like pizza is yes, because we all know that it doesn't matter what school you went to. When it was pizza day, you always came for pizza day and you always this appreciated pizza day in the cafeteria. So, yes, that that is a universal standard. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you a question, though, John. I mean, do you like Italian? Yeah. No. <laughs> yes. 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 We love Italian. I love Italian. <laughs> and so do you. <laughs> Fixing a panel with his mouth agape yes, is yes. also so very memeable. I don't know why it's not. It should be. It is. It is a great moment. Um, I do – look, I, there are a lot of good things to say about this episode. I am going to point out one thing in the script that really bothered me, and it's just a quick scene. It's a quick moment. But it's Wayne Six saying to Odo while they're in the runabout and they're being uh, blasted on by the first uh, Jem'Hadar fighter ship, try to get above them. Why? I'll explain later. This is my least favorite moment in the script. It, it is manufactured drama. Like, okay, dude, later is literally right now. It is literally the moment <laughs> that they move the shuttle from one place when to will then be now yeah yeah you, you could have just said get above them and aim for the dorsal shield junction like that solve the whole thing right there but i i get it it's just it, it's making drama it, it's just like slicing drama from that script yeah all right and i don't think we ever got the explanation later anyway nope. so no um one thing i'd like to have explained to me is exactly how did Ikea make it into the 24th century? Because the desk replacement <laughs> in Cisco's office? Yes, yes. I have feelings. I okay. have many feelings. Okay, I feel like we're going to get yeah. there. Uh, a favorite line, it's just so on the nose, where are my cases of blood wine? Even when we got Martok as comic relief, as he is basically here, he's still great. And I just love watching JG choose scenery. I don't know how you feel about this line. I think this is the best acted line in the episode. We become the ice. Only a god could think of such a thing. Perfectly acted. Yes. A prime opportunity was missed here to replace Cisco's desk with a novelty desk that looks like a giant piece of bacon. You know, John, using the internet without ExpressVPN is kind of like, I don't know if you've ever done this, I don't own a dog, but it's kind of like walking your dog in public without securing them on a leash, because I've seen that happen. I hate seeing that happen. It makes me worried for the owner, for the dog, and anybody else around them. Yeah. I mean, like, most of the time you'll be fine, Mm, but what if that one day your dog, say, wanders a bit too far and gets dog napped by someone or or god forbid actually just kind of takes a nip at someone yeah yeah we don't want none of us want that nobody wants that to happen and that is the perfect analogy for why you need a vpn you need that protection around your devices and around your experience on the internet so look at this Every time you connect to an unencrypted network it could be in a cafe in a hotel in an airport wherever your online data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access and steal your personal data. And we're talking about everything from passwords to financial details, all of this stuff. And it doesn't take that much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. At basically, a smart 12-year-old could do it. So, uh, And when they get your data, your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to a 1000 bucks per person selling personal information on the dark web. Don't let this happen to you. So, Norman, why should people use ExpressVPN? Well, I mean, simplicity is the key, you know, like, and understanding it in terms of simplified terms. Two words you need to know, encrypted tunnel. What does that mean? It means that ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the Internet so that hackers can't steal your data. I mean, that's pretty simple. Also, two important words, super secure, because it takes a talented hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get through this encrypted tunnel, right? To get past ExpressVPN's encryption. Easy to use. This is what you want. You just want to be able to fire up the app and literally push a button to get protected, to get 
super secure encrypted tunnel protection. And it works on all your devices, all your mobiles, all of your desktops, and you can stay secure when you're on the go. Excellent. So here's what you do. You can secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash mission log. And you can get an extra three months for free expressvpn.com slash mission log. Hey, Norman and everybody else, probably not a surprise when I tell you that we spend a lot of time in bed. Well, there's a lot of things that you end up doing in bed. You know, there's sleeping, there's working, there's reading, watching TV, other activities. I would bet that some of you, even right now hearing this podcast, you're probably laying in bed in the comfort of your own bed. Ooh, but what if that bed isn't all that comfortable? Are you getting the most comfort out of it that you can? You may not be. Are you really getting a good night's rest? Are you sleeping on a saggy old mattress and the springs are poking out into your back? None of that is good. It's time to replace that with a Helix Sleep mattress from our good friends at helixsleep.com slash mission log. So I've talked about sleeping on a Helix Sleep mattress and Norman, you've got one too. Yes, I love my Helix Sleep mattress, and I love the uh, the example that you bring up because it reminds me of kind of like the pig pen cloud. You don't want a pig pen cloud <laughs> no, for your mattress with no. springs sticking out of it. So you take the, the I took the, the uh, quiz at, at helixsleep.com slash mission log. It takes two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to find the perfect mattress that fits you. I mean, everyone's unique. I'm unique. John, you're unique. Everyone's unique. Their quiz knows that. Helix knows that. So they have all of these different models to choose from. They have all different types of firmness to choose from. And if you sleep cool, they have a mattress for that. If you sleep hot, they have a mattress for that. If you're a plus-sized person, they have a mattress for that. So I was matched with the Dusk mattress because that's the, the sleep pattern, the sleep style, the body style. And I sleep with my partner, Carol. That's what she wanted, too. It was fantastic. It's like the perfect match for everything that I answered on the quiz. The delivery was quick. The setup was easy. It had that pressure release satisfaction That's of the so vacuum cool. seal yeah. and letting the mattress grow in front of you. I love it. Yes. You love it. And anyone who buys it will love it. Yeah, because look, it's no surprise that shopping for a mattress in a store is a total nightmare. So do yourself a favor. Cut that nightmare out of the equation. If you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you match to, the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Thank you. Helix is awesome. But look, you don't have to take our word for it. They were awarded the number one best overall mattress pick in 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazines. Just go to helixsleep.com slash mission log, take that two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They've got a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. And remember, Helix is offering up to $200 off of all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com dot com slash mission log. So Norman, I feel like there's a certain word that we have brought up many times before on mission log and we'll probably bring up many times in this podcast because it came up a lot in the episode and that is faith. As I once heard, you got to have, you got to have faith. Of so, the heart? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, too soon. Too soon. Low hanging. Fruit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually just the other day, I was listening to a discussion online um, about the word faith and how it's problematic unless you really drill down the meaning of the word. Like, you know, you, you have to start the basis of the conversation with uh, the people in that conversation having a common understanding of the words that they're actually using. And this one was really interesting because it, it really created a problem. So as we see in the episode... It is used a few different ways, I, I feel, and not dramatically different ways, but a few different ways to mean different things to the people who are bringing up their faith. It can be looked at as just a belief, but, mm. but, and that's less useful than simply saying trust or belief. Like, you know, you can trust the outcome of a situation based on experience, based on evidence, 
like um, say, I trust I will hit the ground. I believe I will hit the ground if I jump out of a window. I, I don't have to say that I have faith <laughs> that I will hit the ground <laughs> if I jump out of a window, right? Right. So the problem with faith, as a word, comes up not, not just because it, it, it is a substitute sometimes for this word belief or trust, but when it becomes the justification for belief, not just the description of having a belief or trust or, say, a strongly desired outcome. You can say, you know, I have faith that this will happen. Okay, well, that might just be the wish. That might be the thing that you want to happen. So what I found so interesting in this is that faith is used in very different equations here. It's used for malevolent and for benign purposes. And it's used just sort of uh, for somebody like Kira, just sort of a guidepost. You know, she says, well, I, I, just, I, I just have faith. I just have this belief, even though I know that other people see what I see very differently. So on the benign side, I thought the, the Ferengi version is actually kind of very universally holistic, more so than I thought it would be. There's a certain kind of like hippie logic to it all. It's like, look, man, stuff just exists and it just goes from one place to another based on demand. And we're all just the mediators <laughs> now. Right. Now, of course, the continuum may be abused greatly by greedy Ferengi, you know, less scrupulous among them, or anyone else for that matter, who the Ferengi may be in competition with. Uh, but it was interesting for Nog to sort of reinforce this to the chief. The continuum is real. It's real. Just as real to the Ferengi as the founders are gods to the Vorta, or as the prophets are to the Bajorans. And I, I just, I kept wondering, like, we're seeing one very positive side of this, Nog and sort of his very, um, you know, bright-eyed, innocent view of things and tempered by the sort of moral atmosphere that he's been in around Starfleet see the continuum that way. I kept thinking the continuum could very easily be abused by other Ferengi. Oh, sure. You know? Well, any faith-based system can be abused by any devout person in that system. Exactly. Exactly. But that I thought the far more interesting version of faith in this episode is in seeing Weyun Six's lack of it. Because he attempts to justify his positions in regards to Odo and the Founders while he spars with Weyun Seven. So he has the belief in the Founders. He has a belief in Odo as a god. But all the other beliefs around that that has led presumably every other Vorta to be in lockstep with the Founders' agenda is just gone here. And he gets to, uh, William Six gets to use his point of view, or I should say he gets to use his new interpretation of that faith to be the outsider, to be the antagonist toward that agenda. I thought it was fascinating to be able to have mm -hmm. these, not just people from the same uh, background, but literally clones of each other, <laughs> literally made from the same cloth, be able to have a slightly different set of experiences, have the same faith, but then twist it entirely in their desired outcome. I think that actually the way you describe it, Nog and Wayun are on similar paths because mm. Nog uses the quote unquote faith of the great continuum and kind of twists it in his own way to serve Starfleet, because if he weren't in Starfleet, he would be abusing said continuum for the nth uh, degree of what Ferengi use it for, which is for trade and commerce and for exploiting, you know, whatever partners that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. But in this case, though, he's using it for uh, a benevolent agenda to get the chief what he wants. And what I love about having Nog and the chief together and Wayun Six and Odo together. It's the chief and Odo are the atheist slash agnostic characters of which these two other characters, these two faith-based characters, are trying to impress their belief system upon uh -huh. why it's going uh -huh. to work. Because they usually don't. Like Odo is, he believes in justice. He believes what he can touch, see, feel, and sense. Yeah. Chief is the same way. You know, Chief is a hardened war soldier. He just like, you know what? There may be a bigger power out there, but as far as I know, he hasn't really kind of espoused any type of faith-based system yeah. because of his background. So Nog's like, 
I think that's why the chief doesn't even kind of like recoil like when, you know, Nog's like, you got to believe in the system. You got to believe in the continuum. And the chief's like, I don't, whatever, you know, just get me my desk back. You know, if it works for you, then get me what you said you're going to, you're, you're going to, uh, you're promised me, you know, because I need that stabilizer. I need the captain's desk. I need those, you know, <laughs> right, everything that right. you're going to, that you said that you're going to get for me. But what I love about Wei Yun here is that I don't think that he necessarily is off the reservation so much as that he believes that the founders are different in a very particular way. It's very well possible that in his genetic programming, the history of the Vorta uh, has maybe uh, been misinterpreted so that the malevolent changeling that gave the Vorta their chance to become more than these primal apes is what he's focusing on, as opposed to how the Dominion, based on the founders, has the potential to dominate every other species under their yoke. Well, so let's talk about that a minute, that that Vorta origin story, because I wondered how to take it. If we just take it at face value, it is a very interesting story here that the founders essentially created this species by enhancing a lower or lesser evolved animal. They, they saw this opportunity. Maybe the Vorta would have turned into something more intelligent, more advanced if you give them enough time, give them a few million years in the right environment, and then there they are. Now, if it's just a myth, it is still a very powerful myth to keep them in line. So sure. I, either way, I feel like the founders get out of it what they want to get out of it, and the Vorta get out of it what they want out of it, which is looking for direction, looking for this thing to be able to worship because it gives some cohesion and purpose to their lives. Now, if you could simply take that out of them, and we are reminded over and over again that they are programmed this way, they are literally genetically programmed that way. All right, uh, again, going at face value, was that part of the trade-off? Is that we will make you more advanced and you could certainly argue that if they are a less advanced, less evolved uh, species to begin with, they may not have had the facilities to uh, consent to that change. They may not, you know, they may not have understood the bargain that they were getting, the the deal that they were getting from the founders to begin with. Hey, we're going to make you more advanced, but we're also basically going to make you slaves to our will and do our bidding because we're just piles of goo otherwise, and we'll have you be the face to our agenda out there. You're of the great continuum. Uh, the continuum is everywhere, man, all over the place, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, either way, it serves as a piece of manipulation, but apparently the Vorta are perfectly happy staying within this until you get the anomaly, until you get the one who just has to break the programming enough to still be respectful of the founders, to still, you know, carry that with him that he thinks that they are gods and shouldn't be tampered with, shouldn't be disobeyed. But, but there's also another principle at stake here. And that other principle Mm -hmm. is that we're going to be, if not on the losing end of the war, at least involved in a situation that will escalate to a point that it is deadly and dangerous for the rest of the galaxy. You know, the interesting thing about faith-based systems is that sooner or later, you're going to have people that are devout that are going to be able to question certain things. It doesn't necessarily mean they question the faith per se. Is that can the faith be driven another way? This is where Protestantism was able to come out of, right? Because it's not that... Protestantism doesn't believe in certain aspects of its bathe faith, Christianity. It's just that they didn't believe in certain the, the enforcement of laws of Christianity up to a point. That's how religion evolves. It's, it's very much like has to deal with how the people react to it at the time. Yeah. Right? Does religion serve societal needs at the time? If they don't, then we'll take the best parts of that which help serve the people, which help give the people purpose, but we'll also modify it in a way where we believe that the people need to go in this direction because of the time. Now, you know, there are certain dogmatic religions that don't even really change throughout the course of time, and those are problematic sometimes, but I can understand why this particular way Yin would say, you know what, we have an opportunity here because of what he knows about the founder's sickness for Odo to go and basically reshape the future of what he believes the founders could be if given the proper guidance or have the right moral core 
to move forward. That would be Odo. But, but and see, and, and here's what's so frustrating ultimately when you get to these arguments about faith, you know, because the moral principle here that Weiyun Six has realized exists outside of the context of whatever the founders want, because he's realized the moral principle here supersedes what the direction is from his quote-unquote gods. So that is the thing to work toward. That is the thing to be concerned about. He just hasn't taken that extra step to be able to say, oh, well, wait a minute, maybe the whole system here is broken <laughs> as opposed to where he is now, which is, well, if I, if I just step out of it enough, if I just find the right person, if I just give the right information, maybe I can prevent all these other terrible things from happening. Oh, but I'll still be part of the belief system. But I'll, I'll yeah. still adhere to these other things that are programmed inside me. Well, that's a start. And it may it be is. pushing Odo in the right direction, you know, yeah. but we'll never know because, you know, the whole self-termination module thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oops, there, there I, I is wanted, that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to kind of ask you something, though, about something that probably bothers me in this episode more than faith-based systems. Okay. Why take a picture of a desk? <laughs> I'm serious. Okay, okay. I want to hear this, this out. I want to hear it this out. This entire narrative bugged me because you're in the 24th century. Yes. You literally have scanning devices that could scan Cisco's office in every minuscule detail, recreate that in a hollow suite, and you can send that data crystal or that, that isolinear rod to Al so-and-so, Lorenzo. Yeah. Yeah. Why not just do that? I know that there's a contrivance of humor that needs to be done to lift the, you know, the episode up from being too heavy. But come on, man. The whole thing with like the white desk in Cisco's office that looks like a piece of abandoned IKEA furniture, <laughs> it just was it was yeah. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I'm uh, not saying the entire B plot was terrible. Just that segment was terrible. You're literally in the future where things are replicated ad nauseum. So, again, my big question is, why aren't the parts needed during wartime being replicated ad nauseum? Okay, I, I hear you, and I actually I thought about this, and I'm going to meet you halfway. All right, mm. as a plot contrivance, they were going very far out of their way. I mean, there are certain things mm -hmm. that we know in Deep Space Nine logic that you can't replicate, like uh, latinum, you know, so that that, in, uh, that g gives an inherent value to the gold-pressed latinum that they have, right? Because it can't be uh, replicated. But pretty much everything else can. Um, and especially when you're talking about parts for a starship, okay, look, DS9 is huge. It is full of Cardassian technology, but it's also full of Federation technology at this point, too. And what you do is even if you're rationing off some of that time on a replicator or some of that energy that goes through a replicator, well, it's wartime. So we're going to ration back just enough so that we can make a uh, gravity stabilizer for the Defiant because that is a necessary thing to have. Chief O'Brien has probably got plans for that, and I'd be shocked that they didn't have another one sitting in one of those uh, uh, cargo bays if they weren't, you know, putting up some of their guests in a cargo bay from week to week. So I, I, I hear you there. I am going to defend the desk thing with one phrase, and that is non-fungible token. I'm going to say that in the future, <laughs> in the 24th century, yes, you can replicate anything, but there is only one original of that thing. So for the collector, for Al Lorenzo, who is so dedicated, it, it's not about the desk itself. It's about the thrill. It's about the uniqueness of saying, yeah, but I sat behind the real one. And in fact, I sat behind the real one because I conned some kid on Deep Space Nine mm. to send it to me so I could take this picture. Now I've got the NFT to prove it. Now I can move on with my life. Like, yeah, you could, you could go into a hollow suite. You could be on the fake version of it. Now, I realize that by saying that, I just undid all of the impassioned defenses that I made of a hollow suite <laughs> or a holodeck ever before, which is to say that, look, experience is just experience. Whether you think you saw the Eiffel Tower in real life or the Eiffel Tower in a perfectly replicated holodeck, the experience is still the experience, and your brain has a very hard time telling the two apart. That's okay. But if we're talking about trading for value, 
maybe that's the way we can justify it. Then why didn't they get the desk from Empok Nor that this Al Lorenzo would never know would be the different and, you know, that's, and send him that desk. That, oh, okay. That's good. That, that, that's going deep. I like that. Yeah. Send Nog off. I, okay. You go to Impak Noor. Sorry about what happened to you there last time, but go yes. back to Noor, get the desk. Yeah. And for that matter, pick up all the other equipment that we need because it's probably there. We've secretly replaced Mardok's blood wine with new Folgers crystals. Spoiler, he noticed the difference. Run for your lives. Well, here we are, Norman. Treachery, Faith, the Great River, and the podcast about all three. As we do each week on Mission Log, we will wrap it up with a few closing remarks. We'll figure out if the episode stands up and uh, if there is a moral or a meaning or a message to be divined here. So, Norman Lau, I ask you, my friend, does this episode hold up? Well, first of all, any time that you put Renee and Jeffrey in a room together and just let them act, it's automatically four out of five stars in my book. Because yeah. when you really take a look at the breakdown of this episode— Almost every single scene that they're in is essentially a two-man masterclass in acting, whether it's Renee and Jeffrey or even Casey and Jeffrey in similar regards because you have to deal with William 7 with Damar and William 6 with Odo. This episode is great because it lets the actors act. It doesn't get in the way of the actors' performances. I also like stories that focus on belief systems, as we just discussed in, mm-hmm. our, in our discussion segment. And in this case, it's, it's this whole vorta unwavering adulation to the founders and why they are so devout. Now, I get what you were saying, that in, in, in some degree, I, I enjoy the whole idea of the Ferengi belief system about the great material continuum. A lake how Nog describes it as this river of goods and services and how they're eventually met and fulfilled. Like, hey, man, you know, if you just stay the course, everything will work out, bro. Like that right, kind of right. mentality, right? That, like I said, that holistic type of mentality. But it's their belief system. It's this organic force of how they get things done in their culture. And it's important to them. So I don't really think that we can discount what Nog was saying in this oh, it's just a Ferengi thing kind of way. We take the Bajoran belief mm-hmm. system very seriously. We have mm-hmm. taken other belief systems in Star Trek seriously. Klingon, Stovokor, they risked pretty much everybody to go get to Jadzia, uh, her spirit, sure. you know, enshrined yeah. in Stovokor, so why not this? Um, I mean, think about like what we do today in kind of like online trading or even faith-based trading you know when it comes to sending Mm. things to people we do it on ebay we do it on mercado we do it on so many different ways to make sure goods and services are indeed traded so why not there why not in the future anymore Uh, but i want to focus on the a plot the a plot is really where this episode for me is successful i think the way in clones is a very interesting dynamic i like that they have this solid narrative about their process, about like how each one of them builds upon the other. And in this case, Wayun 6 has this anomaly that allows him to think for himself. And I think mm-hmm. that if there's anything that I've learned in the history of science fiction and fantasy, like movies or TV, it comes from Jurassic Park. You know, it comes from Dr. Ian Malcolm. It comes from somewhere nature will find a way. And this is what happened to Wayun 6. He's a clone, but nature found a way to give him independence. And in this case, it gave him the ability to give Odo a way to think about his future. And I think that that was a really compelling story. So for those reasons, I really like this episode. I would recommend this episode. How about you, John? Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, look, I love this episode in many, many ways. And I think it was made better for me possibly because it comes after a real clunker. Like we've 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 had a difficult time with a few episodes, and last week was not a high water mark. So this one just felt that much better for DS Nine to really be on its game. I mean, look, you said it. You got Jeffrey Combs' performance, which at this point, calling him a genius is redundant for our show. I love how this episode does something that DS9 does very well, which is to give depth and texture to its characters, including and especially the quote-unquote enemies. We've shown cracks in the Cardassians and the Jem'Hadar and now the Vorta. 
and it adds so much more to the stories we're telling. It's not just like you create a mistake or a problem for them. You create a compelling part of character. You create something that is interesting or even admirable about them. So they can be terrible in all the ways that we would see an enemy, but then when you give one of them at least some sort of redeeming quality, it allows us to do what we should be doing when watching uh, a metaphorical story like this, which is to humanize that which either is in opposition or which we don't understand. And then there's Renee. And we've seen Odo make the biggest changes in the last several episodes. And he has a sense of empathy here, which is just great. Even if he doesn't see himself as a, quote, God, I like that he gains this sense of responsibility about the founders and about their relationship to others, and in particular, the Vorta here. So he was able to see... You know, as a changeling, he doesn't necessarily see the Vorta as an enemy, uh, you know, any more than he would simply because he's essentially working in the employee of the Federation right now or uh, for Starfleet. He has a different kind of relationship with the Vorta, and he's uneasy with this idea of being somebody worshipped by them. But the sense of responsibility to the sense of care uh, was really fascinating to see grow on him. And what I really love in this episode is just that the writing is front and center. You got two stories, one serious, one light, that I, to me, they don't really feel like they're competing for attention. They have nice parallels, and they're almost plays on their own. I mean, you think about it, most of the scenes are just two people talking. Mm -hmm. And... That still drives the drama forward. It's compelling because there aren't wasted scenes. Each moment belongs here. Uh, plus, it's an episode about ideas. The, the episode doesn't necessarily need to land on a statement, but we've been on a dramatic journey in which all the characters are questioning their actions. They're trying to determine a course based on challenging circumstances. And it, it doesn't feel like a throwaway where we're just mentioning the war in passing as if to tie it in and remind the audience that it's still happening. This is all character stuff happening in that context. So everything for me was firing at all cylinders here. Um, I, I get it that you didn't love the B-plot uh, for, I think, valid reasons. To me, it worked as a counterpoint while still being able to explore some of those themes. Speaking of themes... Let's talk about morals, meanings, messages. What did you take away here? Well, before that, just for clarification, it's just the desk thing that really bugged me. I do like the whole, like the narrative with Nog, the great material continuum, and the chief kind of like having to trust that. That worked for me just fine. The desk thing for me just did not. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what did I get out of this episode? Well, usually I don't read my, my notes kind of like, you know, word for word, but I, I really wanted to craft this one in particular because first of all, I didn't want to any uh, to insult anyone's belief systems, but at the same time, though, I wanted to address something that I feel uh, I wanted to speak out on. Faith and belief have been very strong messages from episodes past, and it would be easy to land on these two very influential forces that seem to help steer Deep Space Nine's overall vision and narrative. But in this episode, it's the quote-unquote cherry-picking of these beliefs that really intrigued me especially with Weyun-6, who only wanted to believe in one god and one founder, and that's Odo. And similarly, this is how Damar was able to convince Weyun-7 to actually consider killing his god because Odo declared that he isn't a quote-unquote founder and therefore has relinquished all devotion in services befitting one of the Vorta's gods. How does one reconcile with treating their faith like a salad bar? I like mm -hmm. this. I don't like that. I can therefore convince myself that only the parts of my faith that serve me best are the ones to believe in, and the other parts, well, they're just kind of filler, the, the hangers-on, the also-rans from the systems that came before. So that's not what faith is. But it is interesting that this is exactly how faith can be perverted. Let's look at this from a real-world perspective. I'm talking a 21st century perspective. Mm -hmm. How is that that the golden rule, quote, unquote, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, 
can so easily be perverted into you can't tell me what to do or you can't suppress my freedom. This is the world Mm. of the pro and anti-vaccine movements out there. These are faith-based systems now. You either believe in it or you don't. And there's a direct correlation between many categorically religious states out there who are suffering the worst cases of COVID to date. So if they're supposed to believe in doing unto others, then why are we in the state of affairs where we are with COVID right now? Wouldn't those who believe in the most generic and fundamental Christian tenant want to do so because it's what they believe? Or circling back to Wayun, is it easier to cherry pick those beliefs that serve your own selfish needs instead? All right, my friend, hold that thought about faith for just a moment, because I'm going to hit another point here uh, before I have a, uh, a similar closing thought. So one thing that I thought about in this episode and thinking about Wayun Six's journey, I had a little flashback to Spock at the end of Mirror Mirror. Mirror Spock, goateed Spock. We all remember him. Maybe we could have told Wayun Six and Wayun Seven apart if they put a goatee on. Oh uh, my Wayun God, Six. that would be amazing. Somebody <laughs> out there do that, right? Somebody, somebody <laughs> needs to make that happen. So Wayun Six sees the illogic of continuing the war, and he puts himself out there as the one who can possibly start a revolution. He failed in the sense that he died. But he succeeded in the respect that he got something across to Odo that was useful. So maybe he does start that revolution in a way just by showing the cracks in the Vorta and the Founders system. Or maybe just by leaving a little bit of information with Odo, like the location of the Ketracel White facility or the situation with the Founders and, and what they now face. So there is something there that even just putting himself out there for a moment could be seen as a victory. He's the one who didn't summon the future, but he tried to start that revolution. All right. Now, uh, there's a a, a great couple of uh, lines of dialogue here that I I had to write down. And um, Odo challenging Wayun Six saying, has it ever occurred to you that the reason you believe the founders are gods is because that's what they want you to believe, that they built it into your genetic code? And I love this. Wayun Six says, of course they did. That's what gods do. After all, why be a god if there's no one to worship you? Who mourns for Adonais? Yes. Yeah. Now, there's a million ways to pick that apart, uh, one of which that, that I would go to by default is anything that asks me or demands my worship is not worth that worship. There is something fundamentally wrong with that equation. All right. But I'm going to go a different way here. First of all, it's a, it's a masterful bit of circular logic. <laughs> That's, you know, what, what uh, Wei Yun Six has allowed himself to get trapped into. And what I love about this little exchange here is the way that you could apply it to any sort of ingrained or indoctrinated belief. You know, just, just leave a couple of blanks there. Did it ever occur to you that the reason you believe blank is because you've been told to believe it? that you have simply been indoctrinated with that thing, therefore it is true. And it's very hard to step outside yourself and step outside of that line of education, that cultural and social context, familial context, education context that got you to that point. We all have that. We all do it. We all have those blinders on because that's simply how we're built. Maybe we weren't programmed by, uh, you know, an ancient alien species that is more technologically advanced, but we are, quote unquote, programmed in that respect that it is something built into us. Now, what's so interesting through the episode is that use of faith, again, for nefarious as well as benign purposes. And since there is not an objective standard to follow in either case— we have to create objectivity around the desired outcome and, and what those collateral effects are. So I'd say that in a story like this, we have a very classic look at faith through that very Star Trek lens. It isn't an examination of the benefits of faith. It's an examination of how faith, quote-unquote faith, becomes an easy justification for anyone's position. And since that is completely individual and subjective— then the only standard we can apply to any course of action is based on real-world evidence and real-world outcome. 
remove faith from any one of these stories in this episode, and we have the same thing. Nog works hard for a desired outcome. Weiyun Six sacrifices himself for the desired outcome, which is to save Odo and curb the war. And Weiyun Seven adheres to the Dominion's course of action to try to get tactical advantage. In none of those situations did faith alter the outcome. It merely reinforced the positions that they already held. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, once more unto the breach... Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Suggested alternate title for this episode, Treachery, Faith, and the Great Value Version of Cisco's Desk. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.